0: The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. The podcast is also sponsored by Fraser's Ridge Homecoming, presented by Outlander North Carolina. Now in its fifth year, Fraser's Ridge Homecoming is a unique three-day immersive event held in North Carolina's backcountry, with more than 30 historically accurate workshops, as well as encampments, music, dancing, and more. Guests will be taken back in time to Claire and Jamie's home on the Ridge to experience 18th century North Carolina history like never before, form lifelong friendships with other fans, and even have the chance to meet a special guest from the TV series. Come home to Fraser's Ridge October 12th through 14th at Leatherwood Mountains Resort in historic Ferguson, North Carolina. Begin your journey to the past by visiting Fraser's Ridge Homecoming.com. Outlander inspired, history focused. With 250 years of hindsight, it's easy to imagine the American Revolution as a singular experience for everyone who lived through it. But if you were to ask someone from that time what they remember, what they saw, and what they endured, no two stories would likely be the same. Family to family, colony to colony, and even army to army, the American Revolution meant something different to everyone. In the thick of it, This disparate group of colonists, barely held together by proximity and somewhat similar grievances toward a monarch an ocean away, had to figure out what they stood for, together as a nation. All it took was forging something that did not yet exist, an American identity. Hello and welcome to Bergwin Wright Presents, Outlander in the Cape Fear, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region, through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Bergwyn Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Bergwin Wright Presents we are back to exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander, the historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon and the stars series that adapted it for television. The beloved story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time-travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie Fraser. Together, the pair land in the American colonies in North Carolina on the eve of the Revolutionary War in the 1760s and 70s, and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. For this episode, we're broadening our scope a bit to talk about how the American Revolution was not the same for every person or place it touched. In the seventh season of Outlander, Claire and Jamie leave their home in North Carolina and head to Fort Ticonderoga in New York to assist in the building of defenses for the Continental Army. To this point in the series, Outlander has largely shown men like Jamie rallying troops from backwoods communities and from groups like his fellow Scottish Highlander immigrants. But in their time up north, Claire and Jamie see a different kind of war, a more militarized type of war. These two different types of fighting Get at the heart of something that is not often talked about in colonial history how the American Revolution would have looked different depending on where you were. Today, we read about the sweeping battles and contributions of the Founding Fathers, but that is just a piece of the story. For those on the ground like Claire and Jamie, what would it have been like moving colony to colony? Was the war really fought differently in the North versus the South? And what were the everyday implications of a revolution for those who never saw the front lines? We'll answer those questions and more on this episode of Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. to talk about the history of the American Revolution and the varying degrees of experience people would have had in the colonies. We're joined today by Dr. David Haupt, an assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Thank you so much for joining us, David.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm always happy to talk about this subject and excited to have the opportunity to do so.
0: Well, and always with these topics, we get to talk about them in the framework of Outlander. But this is a fun topic because it's a bit broader than the Cape Fear. We're talking a little bit about what it would have looked like here in the Cape Fear to experience the American Revolution and and how it's fought, but also how the show is traveling between colonies. And so, you know, we could talk about the varying degrees of the experience of the American Revolution in many different ways. We're not going to touch on every single one of them this time. For every community there would have been. But I think the movement between colonies and seeing different ways in which the war was being fought really reflects, interestingly, on a story like Outlander that needs to be present for a lot of these major events to carry that emotional and dramatic and historical heft. And so in the seventh season of Outlander, as I mentioned in our intro, we see Claire and Jamie travel north to join the ranks of fighting at places like Fort Ticonderoga. Now, Was that something that we would have seen in real life, people going from the the south to the north and kind of assisting other parts of their cause, other armies, other places in the colonies?
1: Realistically, probably not. Um, It is possible that somebody, you know, would travel that far away. But for the most part, it's important to remember that although we think of ourselves as a united nation and assume that we were always that way, Realistically, these were 13 colonies are 13 independent countries of sorts. And, And in a lot of ways, they didn't always like each other, but they were also concerned about leaving their homes and their families. And so there was a fear that if you travel too far away, that you leave your home vulnerable to attack. And there are a lot of instances where different militia groups, frankly, refuse to cross state boundaries because they are only concerned about defending their territory. Now, there are, of course, exceptions to that. There were plenty of people who would travel as part of the Continental Army. Typically, they are going to be the officers, though. Your, Your regiment soldiers, your militiamen they would more likely stay home. And you have to also keep in mind that travel took so long and was frankly so treacherous that you're risking your life and uh, a lot of money to be able to travel, say, from Cape Fear up to New York. So it's it's possible, um, but it, it definitely would not have been the norm.
0: Well, and we see in the show Claire and Jamie have a reason for leaving their house burns down and so they do have a little bit more of a momentum to look elsewhere to go elsewhere now as we know in the show they're they're trying to head back to Scotland but you know Jamie gets conscripted into helping with the continental army obviously all of this plays into this fictional story but i just do think it's fascinating to think about the distance between here and say new york you know we could go to any of the colonies but that's a long distance those are different worlds in a way and, you know, as they're traveling on horseback and carriages on foot, what are the differences they're seeing in these different colonies? Does the American Revolution look differently in different places?
1: Well, it, for start, there was no American identity. What these 13 colonies had in common was the British monarchy. Up until really 1754, there had never been an attempt to get delegates from all 13 colonies together in one place. So in a matter of 12 years, from 1754 to 1776, you go from these 13 different colonies with different cultures, different religions, different economies, settled by different people for different reasons, to suddenly there were all this thing called an American. And, and that thing called an American is somehow different than Brit, which is complicated because you speak the same language. So realistically, almost everything is going to be different. People in North Carolina, in many cases, had a lot more in common with people across the Atlantic. Than with people up in New York. So, one of, one of the first differences, of course, you're going to encounter are culture and strong differences in culture. In the New York area, it was settled by the Dutch, and there is a strong Dutch presence in colonial New York that you don't see in North Carolina. You know, you would be encounter similar ethnic groups, you know, the Scottish obviously. There was a Scottish presence up north. And then in the midst of the war itself, it's it's well established that in the south it was it was much more of a civil war. And and when I when I say that I mean that it it wasn't necessarily patriot fighting loyalist as much as it was neighbor fighting neighbor. You know, and a lot of times loyalties were driven by other things, internal grievances. So you are, you know, a a landless person working on the property of of a wealthy gentleman. That wealthy gentleman becomes a patriot? Well, you're gonna become a loyalist. Or you have a spat with your neighbor and your neighbor becomes a loyalist? Well, gosh darn, you're now a patriot. And, and that is so much more pronounced in places like North Carolina than it is further up north, where up north, it is a little more ideological. I, I don't wanna say that it's not here in North Carolina, but you see a little bit less of that neighbor fighting neighbor. So the war is going to look very different. So I mean it would be it would be hard pressed to find things that were common besides English. And one of the beauties of the sort of the American Revolution is the cause though. Freedom, liberty. What do those actually mean? They are I mean, we, we can all, Americans are very divided over these topics today, and, and they can mean very different things to different people. And it was this sort of ambiguity of what the revolution was actually about that made it possible for someone from North Carolina to join arms with someone from New York, because they didn't really know what they were doing.
0: And you know, I think people would struggle to define some of that stuff today. Oh, exactly. Now, if, if the South is fighting neighbor to neighbor, what would we consider the relationship of that war in the North? You know, it's more ideological, but what kind of things are driving these people to, to conflict?
1: Well, the armies, for starters. The, the armies are the number one. So the first phase of the Revolutionary War, the British Army was in the north. They didn't move down south till a little bit later. So that, that's the biggest part of it, is that in places like New York or New Jersey, you are either conscripted or in some way affected by these very large armies that are marching back and forth across the colony. So with, with the British army stationed in New York, you're kind of forced to take sides. And I think that's the other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, as today, a lot of people are frankly apolitical. They may have opinions or beliefs, but realistically they're just going about their lives. There were plenty of people in America in 1776 that weren't too concerned one way or the other, but the war is gonna force them to take sides and the war is going to give it new meaning, right? You may not be a, a patriot But if the British army comes through and burns your house down, suddenly liberty is going to mean something very different to you than it would have if it was just some vague notion. So but to sort of more directly answer your question, this that the biggest difference between the fighting in the north and the south is is in the north. It was a much more organized campaign of traditional gentlemen fighting, you know, and at least at the beginning, it was, it was a much more organized army versus army.
0: Well, and that's what we're seeing on the show. We see in the books. We see Jamie go north and fight with, or at least join forces with people like General Fermoy and the Continental Army. And he sees that he is not the person that is planning everything. He's more of one piece of this machine that is this larger effort. And so what was happening here in the South then if you see a lot of more organized military action, how did that compare to what was happening in the South, where we see this story really begin?
1: Well, the South was much more militia-driven. There was, it was, there was frankly, a lot of antipathy and hostility to a standing army. Now, now, that existed in both the North and South, but traditionally, a standing army, an organized army is one of the greatest threats to liberty that exists. Um, and there's plenty of historical examples and contemporary ones where you know somebody's in charge of an army, that person is a real threat to your liberty. And that, that sort of fear of a standing army lasted much longer in the South. And so there was, there was a greater reluctance to, to join these larger forces So in the South, it was much more, you know, saying it's militia on militia implies even more organization than it was often. It was it was neighbor on neighbor. There was a lot of small skirmishing where it's, you know, your group of eight or nine people are going to go attack this particular patriot or or this particular loyalist. And it was messy and it was bloody. And and I think it's sometimes easy to to forget, but war is awful and some awful things happen. And even when, you know, the good guys win, a lot of people are pretty damaged. And you see a lot of that in the South, both property damage and frankly, you know, loss of life because the war looked different. The other important thing to note about the south that was different than the north is of course the presence of enslaved people there, there are a larger number of enslaved people in the south now every colony in the what became america had slaves in 1776 common misconception there's this belief that the north did not absolutely did but there were more when you went down south and frankly that creates complications because you have An internal internal threat, and so you need people to stay closer to home to help guard against potential slave uprisings. Now, toward the end of the war, you're going to see the armies move down south, and you're going to see some more of the organized fighting. But for the most part, it's just a mess.
0: Yeah, I think you can define war as a mess, whether it's organized or not. Fair enough. It's uh, it, it is interesting to see those those differences now. In the cases where you would have seen people go from the South to the North or the North to the South, depending on where these movements are happening, was there friction considering there's not a, a standard playbook for how to fight this war under the same calls, under the same fight for liberty?
1: Uh, absolutely. And, and in some ways, the, the army was, was the first time that you get these vastly different people together. I mean, and and not just from geographic, and as I said, it does happen, but also socioeconomic. You get different religions, you get different economic classes. And one of the challenging things about the American Revolution is you say, okay, this is a war about liberty and freedom. And then you join the army. Well, the army, you don't have freedom. <laughs> you you don't have choice like that's you give that up in fact if you're fighting for freedom the army is going backward being in the army because by definition you're giving up your right to choose what to do and there was a lot of tension around that you know here you have people that frankly are not used to being told what to do maybe they've living on small farms and kind of you know isolated and an army requires structure and discipline and that is in conflict with these grand notions of liberty and freedom and you know certainly you also had and i think it's fair to say some poor generals or or i'll say officers who are better strategically than others and you know again as you said hindsight's 2020 um But you see it play out at the time of the war where there's a lot of debate about how the war is being conducted. And we don't have a ton of records from the people that actually served. It's one of the sort of tragedies is, of course, we know a lot about your George Washington. You know, we know a lot about your commanders, your generals. But when it comes to your average person, they didn't leave a ton of records, and so we only have a few isolated instances where we get a picture of, you know, what did they think? But it's, it's entirely believable, if not, you know, downright sh- assured that if somebody traveled from North Carolina up to the north and then tried to integrate into the Continental Army, there would definitely be friction. There would be a lot of prejudice probably going both ways. But also just the you're an outsider, you know, we wh- what do we actually have in common?
0: I imagine on the Patriot side of this war, there were a lot of people who thought that they could lead the fight for liberty and freedom better than even the generals, you know.
1: Well, 100 percent. And, uh, you know, George Washington you know the, the the Continental Army did not do very well, um, <laughs> frankly, and and I mean their 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 victory came from running away. Re- you know, I, I often tell my students, and you know the the reality is the Americans didn't win the Revolutionary War; the French did, because it was going to be their contributions. But certainly, if you're looking at the begin the first few years of the war, it it's really going poorly, and. You know, there are a lot of people who I'm sure believed they knew much better. Because you've also got to remember that, you know, command was not divided based on expertise. It was often done by wealth. And wealth does not always translate to intelligence. So there is going to definitely be plenty of people who think and are probably right that they had a better strategic vision.
0: Some things never change. Uh. I, <laughs> I would agree. Whether we're talking military, war, nothing. Two hundred fifty years later, some things never change. I, you know, speaking of the the average person, when we bring our fourth grade students through the Bergwin Wright House, we like to remind them that we know a lot about John Bergwin who built the house and his family, because. His only daughter was educated, and she learned how to write, and she learned how to write diaries. And we have 17 volumes of those diaries in our archives. So those are the kind of stories that inform the history that we are learning every day. Not every person in the American colonies, white or black, you know, freed or slave, is going to know how to write, and therefore their story is not going to survive for us to learn from today. So you're correct that it is the George Washingtons and and the generals and the people with the noticeable names that we learn from. But for the average person, as you know, the, the fictional Claire and Jamie are moving from North Carolina to New York, what would the war have looked like in these different colonies? Not necessarily on the battlefield, but how does the war show itself in everyday life for the colonists? Whether they're fighting or not, they're having to deal with the consequences of it.
1: Well the the biggest is just the absolute economic turmoil that engulfed. I mean the and and this is something that actually each colony would have in common is, is that the American colonial economy was built to support Great Britain. It was built reliant upon England. And so when the war breaks out and trade uh grinds to a halt, not only is you know, all businesses ruined, but people don't have access to a lot of the same goods that they were accustomed to. And then you have to run into the other question of, you know, feeding an army takes a lot. And so both the Patriot and, and Loyalists, what they would do is they would requisition. They would come and you may have two cattle, the Patriot army come, they take them. And so you are left with nothing. Now, again, it's for a better cause. So the, the further you go up north, the more of that you're going to start to see. And so that was sort of what I meant by you're forced to take sides because it's harder to avoid the, the, the effects of, of the armies needing supplies, needing food, you know, and we're fortunate in America today, and I and I hope we remain fortunate that that we don't know what it's like to have a war raging in our backyard. And when that happens, though, nothing—whether you're at home or or on the front lines—nothing is the same. And and I think just recognizing that everybody is going to be touched in this way, and of course, the uncertainty of it all, because there was zero guarantee that the Americans were going to win. And if they didn't, what that would entail, you know, the other sort of interesting piece is that it's not sort of talked about as much as the the number of loyalists who, who fled or were driven out. You know, it's estimated that anywhere from like ten to fifteen percent of the population fled, and that is a huge number of people just gone. And and it's one of those things that you know isn't sort of appreciated enough is the extent to which there were huge numbers of people who evacuate.
0: And I imagine that as the war goes on. All of these things take a toll in their own way. You know, people being gone, economic turmoil, differences in military strategy. Desperation gets higher as war goes on longer. Do all of these distinctions that made these areas unique in their own way, did they remain where they were? Or do we see some of these things infecting other places? Do we see more militarized strategy in the South as the war goes on? Do we see more people leaving? How does all this, you know, change or how does all of it spread in a way as the war drags on?
1: So, I mean, certainly the, the pain <laughs> continues. And and to be clear, like in 1783, the country can, you know, at, at the end of the war, the country remained horribly divided and if you were a betting man or woman, um, if you had any intelligence, you would bet on it failing. And, and there was a lot of reasons to think that. In fact, there's some reasonable argument to be made that the British only evacuated because they were pretty sure the Americans were going to come crawling back in a few years. And so the, the pain and misery definitely continues. Now, as, as the war does progress, yes, when the armies come down south and, and the sort of the more the second phase of the war begins in the South, you do start to see more organized fighting. It's, it's definitely, you know, the war is often taught that there are these two phases. You've got the Northern phase in the first two years, and then they come down South. And that is true, but it's also important to remember that just when the armies aren't there, there was still fighting happening. But yes, as the armies come down south, you do start to see a little bit more organization. However, part of that anxiety or, or antipathy to a standing army remains. So there were a lot of trouble in places like North Carolina, getting enough men to serve in the Continental Army because of their concerns about leaving their home, because of their distrust of a different commander, or frankly, they're tired and they're sick of fighting. They're sick of not being paid. They're sick of being treated really poorly. They're sick of promises that it will get better and year after year it doesn't. So it is truly remarkable that not only did the Americans win, but that People held on for that long. And ultimately, that's, that's what won the war was American, the American public sort of put up with it for long enough for the French to come in and the Brits to basically say, you know what? It's not worth it.
0: <laughs> that made me think of, not to quote another pop cultural moment, but the Hamilton musical where King George Third taunts the colonists that you'll be back. Because you can try all of this, you can test it out, but it's not easy to run a country. It's certainly not easy to build a country from the ruins of war, especially when everyone's tired.
1: Well, and, you know, the the irony, of course, is that if if the Americans rebelled because they didn't like to pay taxes, after the war, they're paying much, much more taxes than they ever were. So, you know, there's there's a way in which... King George may have been right to chuckle with the Americans' naivete about what they were doing.
0: As someone who is teaching, you know, the next generation of historians, do you find that people still have to learn to make the distinctions between the differences of the American Revolution colony to colony? Because again, you know, we see movies like like The Patriot and we see things like Outlander. I mean, Outlander is showing us some differences. But to be fair, it's not calling attention to them. It's merely depicting the differences. You know, I like what you said at the beginning that we were 13 different colonies. And that does feel distinct. You know, there is a North Carolina story. There is a Virginia story. There is a New York story. Do you still find that people have to be told that, have to learn that as part of our understanding of American history?
1: Oh, hundred percent. That's that's half a semester right there. You know, is is conveying to students just how different the regions were, and even within col- the colony, you know, the Cape Fear is very different than the back country, and and today we so take it for granted that you can get on an airplane, as I did, and fly from one end of the country to the other, and you get out and. You you feel a connection to everyone around you. You're American, you know. You may politically disagree and everything, that didn't exist. They they did not have really anything else in common besides the British monarchy. I mean, it it took them years to get delegates together in the same room. And helping students understand that I think is so important because the flip side is it's what makes. The American experiment, so impressive. This belief that you can unify a a disparate and diverse people spread out across a huge space behind a, a concept such as liberty and freedom. The fact that that worked is remarkable. And, you know, the second half of the semester is teaching them how it worked But absolutely, I think it is so important to instill, as you say, that each colony, each region has their own histories, um, but that they were so different that there was zero guarantee that they would come together. And, And it's a good thing that for the most part, we don't talk about splitting up into separate countries anymore, but... It was entirely believable that, say, you know, a southern confederacy would have formed or more likely a a western confederacy would have formed. And and the fact that that didn't happen, I think, as as I said, sort of what makes the American experiment so
0: impressive. And that's something that I want people to think about as they watch Outlander or they listen to the show or they come and visit these colonial history sites in North Carolina and beyond. That we're all telling very distinct stories, but they're all feeding into something that, as you said, was quite a big gamble. This idea of of joining all these disparate people together and seeing if they can find common ground. That's why I think this was a really interesting topic and one that's important because we're going to see more of the American Revolution in Outlander. We're going to be talking about it at places like the Bergen Wright House. You've got it in your classroom with your students, and so it's important to to focus on the distinctions because. If we think it's all one experience, then we're not understanding the hardship that it took to build the American identity. And so, David, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and, and learn about this. I learned things myself. And I think that's always the, the mark of a, a good episode, at least from my perspective, when we do this. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you, Hunter. It's been my pleasure.
0: That's it for this episode of Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back every two weeks this summer with new episodes as the new season of Outlander airs on Stars. Until our next episode, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Berguin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please rate and review us which can help more people find the podcast. You can also follow the Bergwin wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook and Instagram, for the latest on what we're doing at the site. As a nonprofit, this podcast and all the exciting projects done at the Bergwin wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider making a donation or joining our membership program with exclusive perks and tours. All the money raised goes towards the furthered education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site. For more information, visit our website in each episode's description or at burguenwrighthouse.com. Thank you so much for your support. This podcast is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to take a moment to thank Durable Restoration Company, And Fraser's Ridge Homecoming for sponsoring the podcast this season. And we'd also like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design, and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their continued support. See you next time on Bergwin Wright presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. The podcast is also sponsored by Fraser's Ridge Homecoming, presented by Outlander North Carolina. Now in its fifth year, Fraser's Ridge Homecoming is a unique three-day immersive event held in North Carolina's backcountry with more than 30 historically accurate workshops, as well as encampments, music, dancing, and more. Guests will be taken back in time to Claire and Jamie's home on the Ridge to experience 18th century North Carolina history like never before, form lifelong friendships with other fans, and even have the chance to meet a special guest from the TV series. Come home to Fraser's Ridge October 12th through 14th at Leatherwood Mountains Resort in historic Ferguson, North Carolina. Begin your journey to the past by visiting Frasers Ridge Homecoming.com. Outlander inspired, history focused.